Welcome to the Mets Pod. On today's show, we break down the addition of Tommy Pham to the Mets roster, the aftermath of Carlos Correa's deal falling through, and how it impacts third base. And as always, we close out the show answering your mailbag questions. So subscribe to the Mets Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you can watch on SMY's YouTube, or wherever you get your shows. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Mets Pod. I'm your host, Connor Rogers, joined as always by my co-host, Joe DeMeo. And right before we started recording, we have some Mets news as the team has agreed to a one-year, $6 million deal with Tommy Pham to provide a little bit more punch on this bench, a little bit more depth to the outfield. Joe, it's been a busy 10-ish days, I would say, for the Mets, connected to Andrew McCutcheon, Adam Duvall, Tommy Pham was obviously in the mix the whole time as well. This seems like a no-brainer addition to the team. It's not star power in any sense, but this team absolutely needed depth to this outfield. So what did you think of this move? He's exactly what he is. He's a fourth outfielder. That's what they needed. He hits left-handed pitching historically. Uh, he was in the top 7% in baseball last year in average exit velocity. He's an above-average athlete. Doesn't really chase pitches, strikes out a lot on pitches, but more so in the zone. Uh, so it's not a perfect player. It's a fourth outfielder. And, you know, I know there's a lot of outrage over Tommy Pham for some reason today. And, you know, the reality is that's what a fourth outfielder looks like. And, you know, it's obviously coming off the heels of everything with Correa. So it just automatically feels light. Uh, they needed to find someone that was willing to take this sort of limited role that the Mets have available. He's, going to be playing against left-handed pitching as the DH, I'm sure, at times. Uh, he's the fourth outfielder, and, you know, that's kind of the role he's going to fit. And then you look at Adam Duvall signing with the Red Sox. There's word he's going to be their starting center fielder, and they're going to move Kike Hernandez into the infield. Uh, Andrew McCutcheon just simply wanted to go back to Pittsburgh, and you can't fault him. He's probably in the last year of his career, and, you know, Tommy Pham just – fit what the Mets needed and was willing to take the role that was available. Absolutely. I think it's the it's the least exciting of those three. Maybe that's where the disappointment lies. But when you look at the reasons, the Mets were never out of the other two because of money. Every person, every player at the end of their career or when they're trying to reset their career has different motivations. McCutcheon was quite clear. He wanted to go home. He wanted to go back to Pittsburgh. There was even some rumors the Mets offered more money. Um, and obviously McCutcheon was a guy that valued where he was playing at the end of his career, maybe a little bit more than being on that true contender. With Duvall, understandably, coming off the season he had, which was ended by injury, he's a guy that had to take a one-year kind of flyer deal, play as much, produce as much as he can to get back to the market so he can hopefully get a multi-year deal worth more money. And then you have Pham, who was probably the least desired, it feels like, of the three, he gets a chance on that one-year deal to have a role with the Mets. But like you said, a limited role. Fam, career uh, against left-handed pitching of an 843 OPS. So he has some pop. He has some speed, which is really nice on this bench. Is he a guy that's going to go out and steal you 30 bags? That's not what he is. But can he chip in 10 to 20, somewhere in that range? That kind of stuff matters on the bench. Even when you need a guy not to come off the bench and steal you a bag, but a guy that can go first to home as well. So... A lot of different dimensions to this deal. It's a absolute depth move 
But when you look at the injuries that happen to contenders every single year, I think you needed a pro, you needed a veteran, a guy that is a little bit, uh, brings versatility to this team that you're not one injury away from a minor leaguer or a career triple A kind of player being forced into a significant role. It's the lack of outfield depth at the upper levels, right? There's there's just nothing there to call up. I mean, they traded Jake Mangum in the deal for Eliezer Hernandez and Jeff Brigham, who was a guy that I thought could have competed for this type of role, uh, but he's no longer with the Mets. And when you think about it, there's, there's nothing else really coming. So they needed somebody that was a major league caliber player, and that's what Tommy Pham is. And there's going to be injuries, like you said, Stalling Marte has missed time nearly every year. Mark Canna has missed a little bit of time and, you know, he ha he has had the hip thing from when he was in Oakland. So they just need someone that's capable to play. And Tommy Pham is, it's not exciting, but go look at free agency. There's simply not an exciting move out there anymore. That market is evaporated. We're in the latter half of January at this point, less than 30 days till pitchers and catchers. So now you're just trying to find value depth and just fill out the edges of your roster uh, based on a 101 win team. Yeah, I mean, that's tr truly how it goes this time of year. You get to the market starts, all the stars get their big deals, the money dries up, and then you have a lot of guys that can be value signings. And, and you know, we're used to seeing this, whether it's the, you know, Kevin Pillars of the world that have come in. Let's not forget, though, once upon a time, a guy named Taiwan Walker was a signing pretty similar to this for low money that was viewed as a back of the rotation guy. And that was one of the better value signings of the Mets last decade. So while these moves can be overlooked, they do have a role on this team. And now we look ahead to basically the golden question that we ask after every time a move comes in, what's the next move? And we're almost reaching the point, Joe, where there is no next move. The Mets will go into spring training. They have a really exciting roster that plans on contending for a championship. They can revisit retooling at the deadline to get better. But the one name that is still out there that I will not let go on this show, and you knew I would do it, Joe, Andrew Chafin is still a free agent, and he is still connected to the Mets, obviously one of the stars of the left-handed pitching market. The Mets have been active in rebuilding their bullpen. They brought back Edwin Diaz. They signed David Robertson. They traded for Brooks Raley. They've made significant additions to this bullpen, but it feels like a move with Chafin is that one arm that gets them over the top to potentially be dominant from the sixth inning all the way to the end of the game. Chafin fits really great with the Mets. Uh, I don't know if they really desire to sign another guaranteed bullpen spot. Uh, Andy Martino's reported that they're looking for guys with options, and Andrew Chafin is obviously something with someone without that. Because if you think about, you know, we can look at the roster based on opening day, and that's all a factor. But at the same time, throughout a season, you're going to use so many relievers. You need guys that are able to go up and down uh, for you know, just simply having additional arms because there's times where the bullpen gets taxed and you need an additional arm. If you're filling up the bullpen with non-optionable players, it limits your flexibility to do that throughout the season. So while that, you know, maybe disappoints some people because they just want to build that mega bullpen and, you know, perhaps the Mets do sign Andrew Chafin or Zach Britton. Those are I was going to say Britton. Yeah, they yeah, are connected they to Britton as well. Yeah, so they may sign one of those guys, and if they do, then obviously it helps the bullpen. Uh, but I think their their priority now is looking at guys that are optionable. And one name that I have talked about off this podcast a little bit, John Curtis is a guy that we know the Mets signed last year 
when he had Tommy John signed to a two-year deal, redshirted him last year on the 60-day IL, and now he's in position to probably make this opening day bullpen. I would love to see them do the same thing with Chad Green. Sign him to a two-year deal. He had Tommy John in the middle of the year with the Yankees, redshirt him this year, and throw him on the 60-day IL for the season, and then Green could be an option for the 2024 bullpen. Uh, so I, I don't know if they're done in the bullpen. They may be. They may not be. They have enough enough arms, I think, that the bullpen's going to be just fine. And and you really want to embrace competition, too. And I think that's a factor that you can't overlook. Uh, when you're considering signing players, the agents are going to look at who are the teams that actually give people the chance to compete. And you don't want to become an organization that's known to not have that happen. So we did hear from general manager uh, Billy Epler this week uh, as the Mets roster reaches closer and closer to what they view as complete, ready to go, ready to roll into the season and compete to win the division. And like we always, you know, I understand why a lot of Mets have a lot of resentment towards this thought because of last year, but the deadline exists for a reason. And and the Mets did not clearly do enough at last year's deadline, but maybe that's something they learned from this farm system grows stronger by the day. I believe they had six players now counting Senga is a little you know, kind of fluky in a sense to me, Joe. So yeah. we'll say they had five actual prospects in Baseball America's top 100. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but I think mm -hmm. that's a positive sign for the youth of the system as it continues to ascend. And that can ultimately play into what kind of moves you can make at the deadline. So we did hear uh, from Billy Epler. And of course, there's a lot of different things, you know, that we'll play in and we want to cover and react to. But for one last time, I think we do have to uh, discuss the Carlos Correa situation, not because of necessarily Correa as a whole or as a player, but the trickle effects of what the Mets do now after seemingly we thought their base was going to be solved for what, 12 years. And now it goes into the off into the season as not a giant question mark, but definitely a position that has a question or two of how it will be filled. Uh, so here was Billy Epler when asked about Carlos Correa. Appreciate the question, Ron, and uh, the purpose behind asking it. Uh, however, I'm not going to go into any detail um, there just out of uh, uh, privacy reasons as well as uh, out of respect to Carlos. So appreciate the question, but uh, I'm not going to elaborate on it. All right, so we'll pair that before we react to both. He went longer on, I think, what matters more here, Joe, because if you're a Mets fan, I don't want to say Chris out of sight, out of mind, but I mean, let's be real. How long can you cry over spilled milk at this point? I think the bigger question is, what is this team doing going into the spring? Is Eduardo Escobar the everyday third baseman? Is Brett Beatty going to be given a legitimate chance to win this job? Let's not forget, Beatty tore up double-A. He had maybe a pint, not even a pint. He had two sips of coffee in triple-A before he was thrown into the wildfire against Atlanta as a major leaguer. So it was a quick rise for Beatty, and you have to wonder, do they think he's truly ready? Uh, so here was Billy Epler when asked about Escobar being the third baseman or how Brett Beatty gets in the mix. Um, I mean, these will be conversations that, you know, uh, Buck and I will have and with, the, with the staff as, as kind of camp goes on. Um, you know, I, I, I will, you know, remind people that, you know, Escobar had a really strong year last year. Um, and, uh, and, and Brett was, you know, Brett's call up was, you know, was born out of necessity um, last year. You know, it was Luis Guillorme had the injury in, in August and we were looking for, um, you know, a left-handed bat to kind of complement at that at that moment in time. And so, um, you know, I don't I don't want to, you know, kind of forecast 
what will come at the end of March. Um, that's why we're going to go down to uh, Port St. Lucie, and that's why we're going to, you know, see what we see. Um, and these are the conversations that I have with with Buck and the coaching staff, and and you know, we'll kind of explore every uh, every option. But um, but you know, we feel very good about Eduardo Escobar. Joe, the line to me there because Epler, he's a pro. He understands how to answer without answering all the time. He doesn't back himself into a corner. But see what we see was what jumped out to me, Joe. That quote as a whole, not only in this quote did he back up and stand on the table for the veterans in Escobar and Guillaume, of course, but see what we see to me, and I want to know your opinion if I'm wrong or you agree, that you don't rule out Brett Beatty coming in looking bigger, stronger, killing it at the plate, capable at third base. And if he's great in the spring, why not give the kid a shot? I definitely took it that way as well. I mean, just think back to Pete Alonso. I mean, when yes, we were great comparison. The January of that spring training, there was no thought of Pete Alonso being the opening day first baseman. Everyone knew who he was, but Dom Smith was the incumbent and they were just going to roll with him and they would have Pete down until he was ready. And there's no reason why Beatty shouldn't be competing for third base. And, you know, Escobar, of course, I would imagine would have the upper hand and he should. He's he's a veteran, been there, done that. I would kind of challenge Epler's idea that Escobar had a good year. He had more a, a good six, seven weeks uh, where he was really dominant and struggled mightily uh, throughout most of the season. But He's a veteran who's been there and done this before. So I, I think a bounce back from Escobar from, you know, not putting an OPS over a thousand, but being more of what he's been for his whole career is a very reasonable expectation. Uh, but if you look at Beatty, like you said, maybe he comes in bigger, stronger, a little more agile at third. Escobar could become a utility infielder. He could uh, do some DH work. Like there, there's options here. And, you know, with the fact that the Mets didn't particularly upgrade the offense. Uh, they basically brought back the same team, uh, just adding Tommy Pham now to the fold. It's The young guys are going to have to step up, whether that's opening day, whether that's May, June, July, whenever it may be. But Brett Beatty and Francisco Alvarez are going to play a massive role in what the 2023 Mets offense looks like. And, you know, may not be opening day, but it's coming. To your point about Escobar, kind of a bookended season, right? In April and March, an 805 OPS. In September, October, a 982 OPS. The months in between that, May, under 600. June, under 600. July, 706. August, 458. So when you really combine May to August, which is, folks, the baseball season, it was a really bad year for Escobar where... To be fair to him, when the Mets really needed help in September, let's not forget, Marte got hurt. This team really started to struggle. He did carry them at times. He hit eight of his 20 home runs in September, October last year, 25 of his RBIs. Um, so you just have to wonder, which Escobar are you getting? And if it's somewhere in the middle, that's okay. But Joe, I kind of ask you this. Is there a world where you can platoon or platoon Beatty and Escobar because you can find at bats against lefties as a DH for Escobar. And he's a veteran. He understands how to mentally keep himself ready every day. 
or do you find that situation too risky to the young player in Brett Beatty? I think that's a possibility. I don't know if that's something I would pursue opening day. I, I don't think you want to have too many platoons going on at once. I mean, where I talk about yeah, this DH is becoming a platoon franchise. Yeah. yeah, can't be that way. That's kind of old. That's a little old school to be that everywhere. But at the same time, if Brett Beatty is raking in AAA and come May 5th, you know, Memorial Day, whatever, and he's still crushing it down there. Hmm. Cinco then, de Mayo, Brett Beatty. Yeah. And then you and then you go with the you go with the that and I think that could be an option as the year goes on. But injuries will happen. Uh, all this stuff always shakes itself out. You and I say this all the time. You the roster that you have on opening day is never the roster that you have down the stretch. There's always differences, whether that's additions, subtractions, injuries. I mean, people forget like everyone complaining about Tommy Pham today for like 50 games last year. Travis Jankowski was their fourth outfielder. <laughs> And he's just not a major league player. He was a good guy, good athlete, could play the field a bit, but he wasn't a major leaguer. And he was a fourth outfielder for a decent percentage of the season on a team that won 101 games. So it'll be interesting to see how they handle Beatty if he succeeds. And if Escobar is a little more consistent, how they balance that will be uh, something to watch. So you brought up how they're essentially running it back with the same offense, plus Tommy Pham on the bench. Um because the Correa deal falls through, the um, significance of this lineup being improved drastically went down. You, you could, once again, make the argument for the young guys and, and you know guys being healthy, hopefully a guy like Marte being back. He really missed a big month of the season at the end of last year and sure he was not close to 100% at the end of the playoffs. So Epler was asked about you know the state of the lineup and this team's offense in general, and, and he had a lot to say on this one. We're fifth in run scored. I think we were second in on base percentage. Um, and, you know, I, a lot of you have seen plenty of games in City Field. It's not exactly, um, you know, the greatest home run environment in the world. But um, some reasons for, for optimism on our part is uh, one, we're going to see, a, a, you know, a little bit more restrictions, obviously, on defensive positioning. Um, as we see the restrictions on defensive positioning that happen in the game, um, I think it stands to reason that some contact and, and a contact approach um, would would get rewarded. There'd be more traffic on the bases um, to couple with that that high on base percentage. You're probably going to see average go up a little bit. And you look in our offensive environment, um, you know, there's many ways to score um, quality base running, having a lot of um, you know, hitters that can manipulate the, you know, manipulate the the barrel a little bit. So, um, and I think even when you, when you factor in, um, you know, the ballpark environment and the stadium that we play in, um, you know, there's certain metrics out there um, that are, you know, out in the public space that, that show, all right, what happened if this team played in a contact, context neutral environment, right? That's, I think WRC plus is one of the ones that does that. And I think we were third in baseball and offensive production. So, um, you know, while hitting a three pointer is, is cool, you know, every now and again, um, and having guys that can, that can put a ball in the seats. Um, I want a lineup that's able to beat people in a number of different ways. And we know one thing is a given, we are going to play 81 games in that ballpark. Um, and so having guys that can do and execute, um, you know, an offensive strategy that, that, 
if if Buck wants to execute a particular strategy or implement a, a particular strategy on any one given night or against any kind of particular you know pitcher, having hitters that can do that, uh, I think that provides value. Um, you know, so I like power, I like contact, um, I like on base. Um, I'm kind of greedy. I like it all, uh, but I want to be able to beat anybody um, in any any particular way. So. Um, I think that that fits our scheme. Um, that I think that fits our ballpark. So um, I think there's reasons that uh, we should feel good about our offense. Where it's going to rank is where it's going to rank. Uh, but the components are there um, to have a successful offensive season. So three things here for me, Joe. One, harping on the fact you play at City Field. Well, that's not changing. Let me just be honest right now. You're you're still playing at City Field. But two and three. Being he brought up that there will be limitations on defensive positioning, and I'm sure the Mets have run every single analytical formula that would tell them hits expected uh, or hits taken away based on the defensive positioning rules that will go into effect from 2022 into 2023. And maybe they see because let's not forget this is a contact lineup, right? This isn't a constant ball over the fence lineup. It's a contact lineup. Maybe they see significantly uh, improved production. I mean, Jeff McNeil won the batting title, but still feels like a guy that has more hits in him with a limited shift. I think it would help somebody like a Lindor. There's a lot of different players that would help. And then number three, the small caveat, is that the right field fence is coming in a little bit. So that can give you a little bit more expected home runs as well. So, Joe, what did you think of Epler? kind of standing on the, on the table and defending his lineup here and, and feeling comfortable going into this season where you could tell when a guy isn't lying, but he's defending it because he has to. I actually thought he came to the table here with stats and numbers that make you feel pretty confident in what this Mets lineup could do. We talked about how this offense needed more thump. We've talked about that for the last couple months. Um, I would say we're going yeah. on a year and a half now. But Yeah, we're going on a while. <laughs> need, need a little thump. But at the same time, the reality is, and you know, this is not popular. And if you say anything nice about this offense on Twitter, you're going to get it absolutely shredded. Fifth and run scored, second in batting average. He mentioned that it's an antiquated statistic, but we're talking about batting average improving with the shift. They were second in batting average. They were second in on base percentage. They were third in weight uh, WRC plus. They were fourth in FanGraphs WAR in baseball. So I think. While they did need more thump, oh, and I mentioned eighth in slugging percentage. So while they were not hitting home runs, they were 15th in baseball and home runs. It's not like they weren't getting extra base hits. They were within the top 10 in the league in that uh, category. So the reality is it is a great offense that needed a little more thump. And that was evident by them trying to pursue Carlos Correa. Like there's no way around. That was the whole kind of purpose behind it. But this is a really strong offense and they're bringing everything back and I think that's a turnoff for people as well, that it's just the same offense that didn't win the World Series. But what would they have done if Brandon Nimmo left? There wasn't a solution for center field. And then when you look around the diamond, everyone else is under contract. So unless you're trading away to try to fill a different hole this way, like unless you're getting you know crazy creative, you were going to bring back largely the same offense that, mind you, performed amongst the best in the league in almost every notable offensive category short of physically just hitting home runs. And if you up the home run number, does that bring down the on-base number? Does that bring down the batting average number? Does that bring down the other thing? So like it it all comes together. The Mets are built a little differently. Would I have liked more thump? Yes. But at the same time, I think we're 
we're taking it a little bit to the extreme now that, you know, there's people that think this is a bad offense. This is a great offense that just needs a little more thump and where they're going to find it is obviously the question. And that's where you're relying on the younger players and, you know, the Braves have relied on younger players. The Dodgers have relied on younger players. You have to, at some point, give these kids a chance to play. And you just have to hope you get a little more production. But overall, I, I agree with Epler's idea uh, that this is a strong offense. He should feel good about it. Uh, are you going to feel perfect about it? No. But you can't feel perfect about everything. And uh, the only thing I would counter is City Field's basically a neutral park now. It's not a pitcher's park so much anymore. It's pretty... It's pretty close to neutral across the sport now. And one thing I'll add, you, you know, we always bring up the young guys for power. Can Alvarez make the team and contribute? Can Beatty make the team and contribute? Vientos, the total variable where I bet 90% of people expect nothing, and then I think that's a little unfair. I think Vientos, there's a world where he could be a guy that hits 20 home runs. We just don't know if he's going to be on the team or play enough. The, the quiet one is, as much as Vogelback, OP, from an OPS standpoint with the Mets, was very good last year, 830. He's got more home runs in him than what he showed with the Mets. He had six home runs in a little under 200 plate appearances with the Mets last year. He's a guy that should be consistently right about 20-plus home runs throughout the full season. He hit 30 in 2019 when he was an all-star with the Mariners. So that's another place where, yes, Vogelback will be in a limited role, but he's another guy that – you're trying to find ways to get a couple more home runs here or a couple more home runs there it, it, without saying Pete Alonso needs to hit 55 and Lindor needs to hit 40 and things like that. You're trying to sprinkle in some here or there, and that's another area where the Mets need it. So a reminder, you're listening to the Mets pod. Subscribe to the Mets pod at Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can watch on SMY's YouTube or wherever you get your shows. Joe, let's get into the mailbag. And a really fun question for you to kick things off here. This one from Zach. He, it's real simple for you here, Joe. He just said, thoughts on the Mets' international signing class? Yes, so the international signing period opened this past Sunday, and that's where you're signing uh, kids from the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, uh, Curacao, Cuba, all, all the countries outside the United States. you get the, the Alvarez States. and the Mauricios that's of the world. Bingo. So that's where they got those guys. They got Alex Ramirez from that same system, and... The Mets signed three guys for north of 100 million. Uh, 100 million. Oh my God, Steve Cohen's got money. They signed three guys for north of a million dollars. And uh, that's kind of the world that they've really resided in. Alvarez is a bit of the exception. He was closer to three when he signed, I believe it was 2.7 million. But when you look at Ronnie Mauricio and Alex Ramirez, they were all in that like 1.8 to 2 million range. And their top guy is another Venezuelan catcher, Diverson Gutierrez. He signed for $1.9 million and reading from MLB Pipeline, because I'm going to get more information on these guys as we go along. It's still really fresh, but uh, they were saying this is another big, powerful catcher that has a good throwing arm and uh, needs some work on receiving behind the plate. And some scouts had said his power at the age of 16, 17 looked like Francisco Alvarez's power at 16, 17 years old. Uh, so an exciting uh, possible signing who signed for basically the same rate that Ramirez and Mauricio signed for. And we know what they kind of turned into as prospects on the national scene. Uh, next, I'd go with Christopher Larez, who's a shortstop, uh, signed for $1.5 million. And he's kind of an all-around shortstop. And uh, maybe kind of like when they signed Andres Jimenez for basically the same price back a few years ago, where there's not a standout 
tool with Larez. He's he's fast, but he's not that fast. He could hit for contact, but he's not going to win a batting title. He has a little pop, but not a lot of pop. So it's kind of like across the board, pretty average tools, maybe a tick above. And, you know, at his age, he could physically mature. He's going to get, you know, better by taking reps in pro ball. So he's someone that I think a lot of people are pretty high on. And the last one is Anthony Baptiste, an outfielder, signed for $1.1 million. He was one of the fastest players in the class, uh, timing 6.1 in the 60-yard dash, uh, can play center field, kind of bat the ball skills, contact-based approach. He's a very small kid that's going to need to physically mature if there's any power in that bat. Uh, but three exciting players that you know are, are, are people to look ahead to. And, you know, maybe they might might not crack my top prospect list right away. Uh, but, you know, when we're talking a year from now, we could be having a, a different conversation about guys like Gutierrez and Larez and uh, Baptiste. So, Joe, let me ask you, when you see these numbers come in from a financial standpoint, what is the range that jumps out to you that goes, oh, this guy was a highly valued player by the league? We know there are limitations of what you can't for those that don't know this understandable the international signing uh period is not covered the same way an nfl draft is or anything like that but basically there are limitations to how much you could spend what you could do you can't just go in and give everybody 80 million dollars steve cohen can't just buy every international free agent he wants which is a good restriction by baseball otherwise this market uh would be absolutely insane but with that being said joe these numbers, what do they mean to you? Are those three at the top that are in million dollar ranges of bonuses? I mean, that puts expectations on them. And we've seen international signings completely flop all the way down to a ball. It just happens. It's the nature of the game. But those are expectations that those guys should become major league players, right? Or at least major league I mean, prospects, yeah. I should say. Yeah, that's the hope. I mean, when you're signing these guys, I mean, every year there are plenty of guys that sign for a million dollars plus that the you'll just never hear their name ever again because sure. they'll just flame out at the lower levels. But w when I think about it, really, if you're talking anything above a million and a half, the expectations rise and then it gets up, it gets up there. Like Ethan Salas was the top ranked player in this class, a catcher. He signed with the Padres for 5.6 million. Uh, so the top really can get up there. Um, and when you're talking about how much you could spend, not like the MLB draft where you have your bonus pool, but you could take some from here by drafting a college senior and give more to a high school player here. It's just a hard cap for the international. So your bonus pool is your bonus pool, and you can't spend $1 over it. It's just hard. So it's exciting to add these kind of talents, and the Mets really have operated in this realm. Like I said, Alvarez is really the exception, but if you look back to Ahmed Rosario, you look back to Andres Jimenez, Mauricio, uh, Alex Ramirez, you look at these guys, it's all in that 1.5 to 2.1 range. And, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely an exciting time, and, you know, I love just seeing them add more talent to the system and uh, stay tuned because I'll get more on them here in the not too distant future. And it'll be exciting to see hopefully at least one of the three end up on your top 10 prospects rankings list uh, in the future. So the next one, this is from Egan. She asked, who do you think will be the surprise standout player this season? And if you've been listening long enough, we try to do this once or twice before every single season right now. And Joe and I stay away from picking Pete Alonzo and Max Scherzer along the lines of that. So Joe, uh, who are you rolling with that ends up being a surprise? You were talking about it a little bit before Daniel Vogelback. Yeah. That's the I one think, I like. I think Mets fans 
they soured on him. I mean, he didn't provide the pop that we expected. Uh, he needs to be more aggressive swinging. I think he takes like there's a difference between uh, being patient and seeing pitches and just not being aggressive enough. And Vogelback needs to be a little more aggressive because, like you said, there is power in there. It's just a couple of years ago he hit over 30 home runs playing and making an all-star team. Not saying Vogelback's going to make an all-star team, but as the part of a DH platoon facing right-handed pitching, he's going to get a lot of at-bats because by nature, there's more right-handed pitching than left-handed pitching. And if he could just tap into a little more power, he hit 18 on the season between the Pirates and the Mets. If he could get that to closer to 25, I think that would be a welcome surprise to Mets fans that, you know, I think are ruling Vogelback out in a lot of ways. I mean, when I see these things on Twitter, I see a lot of people just acting like the DH is a complete black hole, and that's simply not the case. I'm with you as well. We don't have to get into Darren Ruff bounce back potential, but when you look at Vogelback, I mean, I almost want the Mets to be in his ear and be like, hey, man, this lineup is good enough at getting on base and patient enough that you don't need to be the most patient hitter on planet Earth. Like, a little bit more maybe first pitch swinging because there's going to be situation. Listen, Vogelback is in a, a part of the lineup, Joe, where Lindor, Alonzo, obviously Marte is way ahead of him, but there are really good players around Vogelback. He is going to see strikes because you've got to throw to somebody. You have to throw to somebody. Pitchers we've seen try to work around Lindor and Alonzo, and we know Nimmo will take 12 pitches every single opening at bat, but I think what Vogelback is, you never want a player to completely lose their identity, but I don't think he needs to be this guy that's just constantly waiting for the perfect pitch. I, I would almost, if I was the staff, harp on him to be more aggressive early in counts because, listen, if his strikeout rate goes up or his on-base goes down a little bit, but you clear that 20 to 25, maybe even hover to 27 home runs, his role in this lineup, Joe, that's more important to me than just being another on-base patience guy. It's huge, and they need someone behind Pete because yeah, it's it's Which very Correa likely. Plan. Yeah, the Correa plan was to have him behind Alonzo. It'll be Otani in 24. Oh, God, I can't wait to do that lineup construction. That'll be fun. <laughs> uh, but, you know, McNeil obviously could hit in the five-hole because of his contact ability, sure. and he's, he's going to be effective. But you kind of want someone that – can potentially strike fear. And I'm not saying pitchers are going to be like, oh my God, Daniel Vogelback is up. I got to pitch around him. But if he could become, like you said, that 25, 27, if he could get into that range for power, I think that makes a significant difference, not just in, you know, when we look this time next year, what the Mets ranked in home runs, but I think it helps Pete as well. My surprise, uh, if I have to go from the the pitching staff or, or the bullpen, I would take either, but I'm, I'm going to go with Jose Quintana here. I think Quintana is a guy that falls somewhere um, in between that three to five spot all year, gives you a lot of innings, is reliable. And when you look at his contract for two for 26 million, it's a signing that I really, really like. The Mets have star power at their rotation. They have the thought of the unknown with Senga, but I like the reliability of Quintana, and I think fans will really, really gravitate that to that. So, Joe, one more question of our mailbag before we close our show today from Steve Miller, who sent us a ton of good stuff. This is the one I picked. He said, not that an upgrade couldn't have been made, and Ruff's 2022 in New York was terribly bad, but Drury, Josh Bell, Vasquez, and Mancini, among others, 
struggled after the deadline too. That is very true. Others have struggled after being a rental and turned it around the following year. Here's to hoping that that, that is rough in 2023. I Listen, I'm not going to get on here and declare that, you know, the Darren Ruff bounce back happens and this and that, but Ruff is a professional hitter that was completely in his own head when he got here. And I mean, what do you have to see at a 413 OPS? He hit under the Mendoza line on base was 216. He didn't hit a home run. He I mean, what else needs to be said? But Joe, the guy is enough of a pro that maybe it doesn't work out at all here. But to entirely write him off, and I know people are cannot get that out of their heads. They can't take this seriously. But I think it's a really good point by Steve Miller that all of the bats basically struggled as rentals next year. And I think there's a reason the Mets want to get rough into spring training and see, is he washed or was he just completely swimming upstream for the end of last season in a place with a lot of pressure? And that's there's fair. no way yeah, it is. I mean, there's no way around it. He was horrible. He was horrible for the Yeah, Mets. we'll be the first and, to tell you that yeah, every day. Like that that's the way it is. But historically, he has always crushed left-handed pitching. He has done that year in and year out for his entire career. That's one of the only things that you could rely on him for. And he did not do that for the Mets. So I understand wanting to give him up. I mean, you and I have talked about this offseason about kind of getting rough off the roster. But now that we're getting this close to spring training. Bring him to Port St. Lucie. What do you have to lose? See I mean, happens. yeah, like there's half this team is going to the World Baseball Classic, which I, we'll get into a, on another sure. show here about everything that comes with that. Like Lindor is going to be there. Uh, McNeil, Alonzo, uh, who else? Uh, Marte, I think, is going. Like Narvaez is going. So there's going to be a ton of at-bats available in spring training. And like you said, bring Darren Ruff to camp. Let him play. And if he shows he has nothing and – you know, he's washed, then you cut your, you cut ties at the end of spring training. He doesn't make the team, and that's that. Or maybe he comes and shows a little something, shows what he was prior to the Mets acquiring him. Because I don't think they want to just cut ties for the sake of cutting ties. But he's got he's obviously got a ton to prove, and I think he, there's going to be available at bats in spring training for him to do so. And if he doesn't take advantage of that, then you unfortunately have to chalk that one up as a complete loss and, and sever ties. But – there's no reason he shouldn't come to camp, have a chance to compete for a roster spot and and see how it how it lasts throughout the you know the month and a half in St. Lucie. Absolutely. And listen, Ruff's been here before, right? He's a guy that bottomed out in Philadelphia, had to go overseas, rebuild his career, came back to San Francisco. Um, so he's faced adversity before. He's completely bottomed out in the major leagues. And I think that plays a part in knowing if a guy can bounce back or not. And, and we're gonna find out with Darren Ruff and listen, nobody loves a comeback story better than New York sports fans. So I, it would be, we're hoping that they can get anything out of Darren Ruff. Um, one last reminder here to subscribe to the Mets pod at Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Of course you can watch on SNY's YouTube, Joe closing thoughts for our, uh, our Tommy fam episode of the Mets pod. The hot stove season is coming to a close and I love the last the shows we did going back to the winter meetings coming coming on live every day and everything we've done covering it over the last month and a half and uh, appreciate everyone really staying with us throughout the offseason. Uh, we know how exciting it was for the Mets, despite how it ended with Perea, still a very exciting, very effective offseason by the Mets. But we're at the point now where we're under a month until spring training. I'm ready for Port St. Lucie. I'm ready to see 
guys taking BP, guys fielding fungos on the backfields and spring training games that I get really excited for and then realize after two of them that they don't really mean anything. And just I'm getting ready for baseball to be back and, and we're getting close. I'm excited. I love having spring training on during the day. Honestly, it's one of my favorite times of the year. Like you said, it's great to see everybody down there. Max Scherzer hopefully doing some crazy stuff. Excited to be back. To see him and Verlander uh, on the same field to really be really special together. And, of course, a reminder that we are not going anywhere. We are geared up and ready to go and excited. So we will be back with another show next week. Keep sending Joe your mailbag questions. Uh, I think we'll be able to handle a couple more next week as the offseason news and moves and press conferences dies down. So thank you so much, everybody. We will catch you next week.